0: The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Joshua, from chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, how long will you put off going in? to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it, with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went. And Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying... Go up and down the land and write a description and return to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we come before you now humbly pleading with you to open your most sacred lips once again and speak by the same Spirit who inspired these words that we may hear them afresh and hear them speak to us and to our church, to the church here in Fort Worth and in the Western world and across the world today. May we hear you shaping us reforming us that we may be made more like our lord jesus christ more fit representatives of him more fit members of his body to embody him in the world and we pray in his name amen, amen. please take a seat and let me just add my welcome to mr douglas's earlier especially to those of you who are if the first time or visiting it is a real pleasure for us to have you with us we hope you enjoy your time with us and um We're just delighted. If you are able to stick around afterwards, you'll find we have some coffee and a time of fellowship, and we hope you'll give us the chance to get to know you a little bit. It's always a pleasure to have people visiting us for the first time and sharing in our worship with us. One of the great rediscoveries among Reformed evangelical Christians in recent years, and one in which our denomination, the CREC, has been, I think, particularly blessed, has been a rediscovery of the significance of gathered worship, what we do when we're here together on the Lord's Day. A number of years ago, I came from a tradition which used to refer to Sunday worship as meetings, rather than worship, which struck me as, okay, reasonable at the time, but one of the things that... uh, we have discovered and those who've shaped our life as a congregation have discovered in really recent decades has been the historic reformed and patristic teaching coming right back from the early days of the church and obviously from the scriptures that what we do here in worship is extremely significant there have been a number of factors in this we've been discovering our historic reformed heritage the reformation actually was a liturgical renewal it was in very large part, directed towards reshaping what the people of God do when they get together to worship. We gather here, all of us, in the presence of God. You don't gather to watch me and Pastor Neil do something in Latin facing the other direction, right? You gather to worship the living God. Of course, our earliest fathers in the faith understood the significance of worship. The Athanasian Creed, very interesting, from the very earliest centuries of the church... The Catholic, by which they meant universal Christian faith, is this. That's we worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity. The Christian faith is about worship. This has led to a rediscovery of the significance of sacraments, of baptism, and the Lord's Supper. We gladly and joyfully celebrate the Lord's Supper every week. In a sense, it flows from a recognition of the Old Testament, of the significance of the Old Testament for the Christian life. We don't ignore the first 77 and percent of the Bible when we're trying to think about what we do. And so we see in the Scriptures deep and rich patterns for our life together and how we should structure our worship. And, and in fact, it even relates quite significantly to a topic which we have touched upon occasionally in, as we've been going through the book of Joshua, the topic of eschatology, that is the shape of history. What we do in worship is the first step, if you like, in a three-step process by which God goes about transforming the world. There's a huge amount we could talk about here, but just in outline. We come to God in the sanctuary to meet with Him, and then He, secondly, shapes our relationships with each other as families and as friends and as part of a congregation. And then we are equipped as renewed people, a renewed community to transform the world. You see this all over the place. I was writing these sermon notes and I had to delete swathes of material or we'd be here till two in the afternoon because there's such a rich and deep kind of theme in the scriptures. Ask me about it at a forum if you'd like to. But suffice it to say, we have been tremendously blessed by a renewed sense of the significance of what we're doing here. Meeting with the living God Seated by faith in the most holy sanctuary, the sanctuary, not the, the model of the sanctuary like the tabernacle or the temple, before the throne of the living God, to be empowered to live the rest of our lives by God's grace for his service. And I think probably, and it's interesting, we've got a few people here who I think are here for the first time. I'd like to, I won't embarrass you now, but I'd, I'd love to do a, a, a survey to confirm the impression I've received as I've talked to other people who've come to All Saints for the first time, um, when they say that it seems to them that service might be a bit strange and a bit unfamiliar, because all services are unfamiliar if you're used to one way of doing it and you go to something, but at least it, it seems to be a joyful and... Uh, enthusiastic celebration of the goodness of God. And it's part of the reason, of course, why we have the the rituals of standing and sitting and kneeling. We want to take seriously those sober matters that God teaches us to take seriously. And I think um, a a visitor to our services might well say, well, your worship is glorious. But then they might well ask, I wonder what about everything else? Your worship is glorious, but what about everything else? I think that's an important uh, question to consider for ourselves. We can show people who visit us what our worship is like, but what are our lives like the rest of the week? See, because it's not automatic that that three-step process takes place. It's not automatic that as we meet with God in the sanctuaries, our lives will be transformed as if by magic and we'll be able to reshape the world around us. That's not... It is in and through us that God does these things. It is possible, in other words, to have glorious God-honouring worship and there to be only limited impact downstream. We could come here on the Lord's Day and rejoice in our meeting with the living God and as, as far as I can make out, we all seem to do and then enjoy our times of fellowship together, perhaps, and have a cup of coffee or have some food together, and then go out and it makes zero difference to anything else. And that issue seems to me one of the issues that's raised in Joshua chapter 18. The reading I've just read to you comes from the third section of the book of Joshua, where um, uh, you remember the first three sections. The first section, the people are entering the land, and then the second section, they're conquering the land, and then in the third section... They're starting to allocate the land and divide it up into its different portions. And what you've got in chapter 18, verse 1, just look with me, and I'm going to read the first three verses and just talk you through this. You've got this tremendously enthusiastic gathering for worship, chapter 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. Very significant little uh, half-liner. We'll come back to that in a few minutes' time. And the land lay subdued before them. And they've got this huge gathering. They haven't had this gathering like this for 10 chapters. I've only done it once before, really, in the book of Joshua. And then verse 2, there remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned, which is very strange because you've got, the whole land is subdued, verse 1 says, but then there's seven tribes, and you can find out which the tribes are if you look through the next couple of chapters, that haven't yet had their inheritance allocated. And Joshua stands up, verse 3, and he said to the people of Israel some rather disturbing words. How long Will you put off, literally, how long will you be slack? How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given to you? Can you see? There's this note of exasperation. Like, guys, we all are for worship, great. Um, There's a job to do. How long are you going to put off doing it? That seems to be the tone of his remonstrations with them. We're all expecting a really happy gathering. We're here at the... Tabernacle's been set up in the heart of the land. It's going to be wonderful. And Joshua drags us over the coals, telling us, like, what are you doing? You're being slack in your commitment to the Lord. And then the rest of the passage is a series of instructions. And what's really interesting is they do seem to receive these instructions with enthusiasm. While they're in the gathering around the sanctuary, while they're at this stage of, yeah, we're all together, while the pastor's watching... Is yes, we will do it. And it leaves this question hanging for the whole of the rest of this third section of the book of Joshua, all the way up to chapter 20 and 21. Like, what are they going to do? Are they actually going to go through? You see, it is possible to receive a tremendous inheritance from the Lord, the land lay subdued before them. It is possible to make all these passionate and enthusiastic preparations for worship, to drop whatever you're doing and stick all the, the family in the back of the truck and drive all the way to Shiloh. It is possible to have this rich and beautiful and glorious liturgy of worship, in which you look forward to every week. It is possible to make this deep-seated initial commitment to the Lord and then just not follow through. And when the cold light of day comes, it's like, well, that made no difference, did it? And that's the question, really, that this passage puts before us. like, How closely, how closely are our daily lives going to conform to the pattern of our worship. You've heard me talk about this before. What worship is supposed to be is like life in microcosm. So we exemplify here what we do in the rest of our lives. That's the question. Is this going to be an exemplar of the rest of our lives, or is it going to be that nasty disconnect that we all know could be present? And in the rest of the passage, I want to highlight four aspects of Israel's life. And I think actually their experience in some parts mirrors ours very closely. That's going to be my question to you. Do do you see yourselves in these people? And Lord, preserve us if we see ourselves in their slackness, in their lack of commitment to actually follow through on what we're all here to celebrate. We're all here to celebrate the goodness and grace of the living God. There are at least questions about whether our forefathers, the people of Israel, at this stage in Joshua 18, were ready to do that. Let's just dive in and have a look and see. Consider for yourselves how much your experience lines up with this. Look, firstly, about their inheritance. Notice, the inheritance that they'd been given, the land that God had promised them, was secure. They'd been given what the Lord said he would give them. Verse 1, The whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there, and the land lay subdued before them. And then at the end of the passage, at verse 9 and 10, when all these guys have gone off, and they've kind of uh, written down all the dimensions of the land and mapped it out, basically, and drawn kind of mental boundaries and made notes of where everything is. Then they come back, verse 9, the men went and passed up and down the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua at the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel, to each his portion. It's like, is there anything the Lord God has not done for these people? Anything at all? And it's like, no. Everything they could possibly have longed for and dreamed about and prayed about has been given to them, the land lay subdued before them. There are some wonderful details here. I've noted a few times before that um, the book of Joshua is very, very uh, precisely and carefully written and sometimes even the number of times a particular word appears is, is significant. In this passage the word apportioned, is sometimes translated divided or Uh, allocated, depending on your translation, appears seven times, and the word inheritance appears four times. Now, seven, four, and you scratch your head and you think back a couple of weeks to when I last talked about these numbers, and you realise, of course, seven, seven is the complete week of creation. This apportioned land of Canaan is your new seven-day created place to rest, seventh day. And four, well, four is... Uh, a number used frequently in scripture to, den- to denote the whole expanse of the created space in which God has given us, the four corners of the earth, the four winds of heaven, and so the inheritance four times, because God has given the whole thing to you. It echoes earlier summaries back in chapter 11. Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord has spoken to Moses, and speaking of having spoken it to Moses, just remember where we are in history. This is the fulfilment of hundreds of years of promise, hundreds of years of hope, hundreds of years of clinging to God's covenants with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and all the years of slavery in Egypt and wandering in the wilderness and then wandering and hoping and waiting and praying, and suddenly this generation is finally arrived. The entire promise of God has been fulfilled. It's like, can you, does that look at all like your, significant, your, your life, your experience of the Christian life? Like... and the danger is now what you do is you look at your circumstances and that's not what I'm talking about I'm not talking about your circumstances I'm talking about the astonishing privilege of the time in which God has given us to live and immediately you then think time that God has given us to live and we start thinking about you know, 21st century political life or the, the foolishness of our media I'm not talking even about that I'm talking about the fact that we happen to live not in the days of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. We don't live in the chaos of the reign of Ahab when he'll just, you know, he likes your vineyard so I'm going to take that and have you killed somehow. We're not living in the exile or in the long years of wandering in the wilderness. We're living in the days of the outpouring of the spirit of Christ upon all the nations through the proclamation of the gospel. We're living in the age, Peter remarks upon this in 1 Peter 1, You've heard the good news preached to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There were angels in the first century who would have given their right arm if they had a right arm, which they don't have because they're not embodied creatures, but if they had right arms, they would have given their right arm to see what you see, to hear what you've heard, to live in the age of Christ and the Spirit being poured out the nations being sanctified. I'm always struck by that passage, I'll just turn to it briefly, and no only for you to do so. In Hebrews 12, where the author of Hebrews contrasts our experience of worship by the Spirit in the sanctuary that God has reserved for us in heaven. He contrasts it with being at Mount Sinai. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I think being at Mount Sinai would be pretty cool, don't you think? Right? I mean, the fire and the thunder and the earthquake and the voice that God spoke that shook the heavens and the earth, and, and that contrasts negatively. It's inferior to what the author of Hebrews says we have come to. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and blazing fire, yawn. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and you've come to Jesus. Well, there's a good thought. The mediator of a new covenant who speaks whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are, we are living at a time that everybody in the days of Moses, everybody in the days of Abraham, everybody in the days of Joshua would happily have traded places with you to live in the age after the dawning of the Messiah. And then you look back at what they had, the land lay subdued before them. And you think, well, that's pretty good. And then you think, hold on a second. Um, every knee will bow, disciple the nations. The Spirit is flowing out from the heavenly temple to sanctify the whole face of the earth, and we're living in that age. The world lies subdued before us. There is nothing, nothing at all, that exists in Christ that we don't have in him. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians 1. God's intent is, Ephesians 3, that through the church all of his wisdom should be made known to the powers and authorities in the heavenly places, and you are that church. So, I think we can probably safely say that if their inheritance was secure, how much more is ours? Can you think of anything that the Lord could give us that he's not given us? What could Jesus do, other than being seated on high at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling the nations, and superintending his spirit, spreading his gospel to show mercy to a thousand generations of those who love him? And here we are in generation 80. So that's the first thing, somewhat similar to us. Number two, they're formal gatherings, so once they've realised how much they have, they come together for worship, and how do they come together? they come together, it seems to me, in much the same spirit that we do. They come together with enthusiasm and delight and commitment to the Lord. In fact, this is the case throughout the book of Joshua. In Joshua 8, Uh, later on in chapter 24, uh, they'll have two covenant renewal services, like a worship service at Shechem. On both occasions, the whole people will be there, and they will be there with commitment and enthusiasm and giving themselves wholeheartedly to worshipping the living God. But you see something similar here. It doesn't look to me like they're actually gathering for a worship service as such, but they're gathering to prepare the sanctuary for where it's going to be for hundreds of years. This is like building the church that we're going to worship in until the days of King Solomon, or David, 300 and something years away. Verse 1, the whole congregation of the people of Israel gathered. Everybody made this long journey to Shiloh from wherever they were. They assembled... Interesting word there. That if you've been coming to Wednesday night Bible study, this is the verb kahal, which means to gather or to assemble. It's the word that it's turned into the name of the guy who wrote Ecclesiastes, Solomon. He describes himself as the one who gathers the assembly. But but where it really comes from is from Mount Sinai. That's the kahal. That's the assembly of God. That's the assembly of all the people drawn together. out of the nations to stand before the living God and it's quite rarely used in Joshua, only once or twice the last time I think it was heard is in the book of Deuteronomy like 20 something chapters before in the Bible and now we've got another assembly now here we are for this momentous occasion the tent of meeting is there, I mentioned it's going to be there for the next 10 generations or something Shiloh is the location where's Shiloh? you know what your name means brother? where is he? Shiloh comes from, uh, It's related to the word shalom, which means peace. Um, it, place of rest, probably, is, is, is um, the best, best way of um, translating it. Um, it echoes the, the gift of God of rest on the seventh day, when he'd finished making the world and he rested, and now he's come to gather his people to him to rest, to enjoy his presence. It's actually the fulfilment of God's promise of uh, Deuteronomy 12. He said to the people, he said, when you get to the land, um, you've all got to come together to the place that I will choose. And if you've been paying attention to Moses' sermons back in the land of Moab, before you crossed the Jordan, you'd be waiting for this. You'd be waiting. I wonder where it's going to be. And here it is. These are the people who happened to be alive on this day, and they gathered for worship. It's like the new start of this community. In fact, I, I, I couldn't resist this, because I know some of you kind of find this, the astonishing intricacy of the scriptures you want to kind of see this in full glorious technicolor so mrs loki labored for hours i'm not joking to produce this our church administrator just grab your orders of worship and and i'll show you the um insert Um, this chapter chapter 18 verses 1 to 10 actually sits at the center of the whole of the second half of the book of joshua Um, There is a chiasm, of course there is, um, that stretches from chapter 13 to chapter 24, and this was not me, this is David Dorsey in his superb little book, um, Literary Structure of the Old Testament. And you see, at the beginning, there's an introduction and Joshua is old and, it, and he's going to divide the land and the Lord will drive out the Canaanites. And in the conclusion, Joshua is old, he's going to divide the land, the Lord will drive out the Canaanites. There are corresponding elements all the way through to the middle. Take it home and you can have this one on me and spend all Sunday afternoon kind of digging around in the book of Joshua. And This structure is right there. But the important thing for our purposes is what's right at the centre? What's the thing that sits at the heart of the allocation of the land of Canaan? It is this moment where they gathered to worship the living God, and the people seem to realise that. The Lord has fulfilled his promises, and now he's come to set up his place in the midst of the land, and all the people are gathering with the kind of enthusiasm that, I've got to tell you, Pastor Neil and I thank God that we see among you for worship. There are churches, I have um, a, friend, a number of friends in England who are, who are ministers, who have given their ministry to uh, a little church or a little cluster of churches in the middle of rural England where people go to church with the same kind of zeal and enthusiasm that the rugby team would convene for a knitting circle. I mean, they go, occasionally, um, whether they think they need it or not, they're, these friends of mine, ministers and vicars in the Church of England, they're like missionaries inside the Church of England, seeking to see the same fire of love for the living God kindled in the hearts of the people in their parish. It might be five, 6,000 people in two little villages. Mark is one of the guys. Play for Mark, yeah? He's, he's the gospel hero, the man who gives himself to people who are You know, maybe one day they'll have the enthusiasm for worshipping the living God, but Pastor Neil and I have this privilege. We come here every day and our ears get blown back by the singing. every day, every week. We come here every day, actually, it's kind of our job. Um, I don't know, if you're sitting at the back, sometimes you should come sit at the front and hear the singing, it's just awesome. It's probably pretty good at the back, even. It is such a privilege to be among brothers and sisters who gather with enthusiasm to worship God. I think we're so like these Israelites. You know, we've received so much and we gather to celebrate God with joy and zeal and enthusiasm, so let's just carry on and see, see if the portrait continues to resemble what we find among ourselves. The third point you notice is that when Joshua says, okay, come on, it's time to get up, it's time to go, it's time to take action, they re- resolve immediately, they say, right, we'll go and do it, and at least some of them do, just look with me, Their commitment to the Lord's work seems really steadfast. Look in verse 4. After Joshua has finished kind of grabbing them by the lapels and sticking them up against a wall and headbutting them a few times, he says, verse 4, Provide three men from each tribe. Come on, let's get this job done, you lazy bunch of Israelites. I will send them out and they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. You could divide it up into different bits, verse 7, and then, sorry, verse 5, then verse 6. Then come back, and I'll, I'll cast lots before the Lord. See, the Lord's involved with this. You'd better get your act together and sort yourself out. And in verse 8, so the men arose and went. And Joshua then reiterated the instructions to those individual men. So you've got seven tribes, presumably left, and so seven times three men from each tribe, 21 people, and he's got them all together. He says, right, you paying attention? Go up and down the land and write a description, and return to me, and I'll cast lots before the Lord for you. And they did. They went and did it. Wow. <laughs> That's what we want to see. You, you get everybody together, and you, you urge them, you say, is this something you're going to be committed to? And they say, yes. And they say the same thing at the end. In chapter 24, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, says Joshua. And they all say, yeah, we'll serve the Lord. But actually, the, again, on, the, on your little handout, I couldn't resist all the colours, and there, there, are, there are lots of little word plays which highlight... The, uh, the degree of their commitment and faithfulness, if you look in the three boxes, um, well, the top of the first box, um, it says, um, I will send them out and they may set out and go up and down the land. Um, literally, it's arise and walk. Kum lake for the Hebraists among you. I know there are a few. Cum, lake. Arise, go. Same words that God said to Jonah, same words that God said to Elijah. It's actually the same words that he said to Abraham. The first time these two words appear together in the Bible is in in Genesis 13, um, in um, verses 14 to 17, when uh, the Lord meets with Abraham and he says, Look at the land that I've set before you, after He separated from Lot, and lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north and south and east and west, and this is the land I'm going to give you forever. And your offspring are going to be like the dust of the earth. Verse 17, kum, lake, arise and walk. Abraham arises and walks. And these men are told to arise and walk, and they do the same thing. They're tracing the footsteps of Abraham. In fact, the next time these verbs are used it's when the Lord himself meets Abraham. I'll tell you about that in a few minutes. Um... Uh, no, not next time. It's, that's chapter 20. I forget I said that. Rewind that part. Is that on the video? Really sorry. Um, the, the verbs then are repeated. Just look in those three boxes. I, I kind of tried to highlight these. I don't know whether it makes sense to you, but you've got three instructions: go in blue, write a description in red, cast lots in purple. Sorry for those who of you are colorblind or struggle seeing colors. And then go write a description cast lots, go write a description, cast lots, it's repeated. The whole passage, in other words, go and look at that on Sunday afternoon if you're kind of interested. It's structured to highlight that the people did exactly what they were told. This is what Joshua said you've got to do, and this is what they did. In fact, you notice how many people they sent. It's really intriguing. Um, What does Joshua say? Look with me. Verse 4, how many men? Three men. And you might wonder, why, why three men? Initially, I was thinking, is it like the two or three witnesses? Because two or three witnesses to certify a legal transaction or to uh, sustain a legal charge in court. But it doesn't say two or three, it says three. You know, the phrase three men is very rare in the Bible. The only time it appears before this is when the Lord appears to Abraham in Genesis 18. That was a reference I was thinking of. Genesis 18, three men appear to Abraham. It turns out that's the Lord appearing to Abraham. So it's as though these men are you might say doing the lord's work they're standing in the footsteps of abraham they're standing in the footsteps of the living god himself they're walking up and, la- and down the land to receive the promises can you see the commitment they seem to be ready to show and of course the question that's all that we um, ought to be thinking about is well w- when push comes to shove are they actually going to do this um, I'll, I'll say a word or two about that in a moment but just think for a second about the value of making a public affirmation of your commitment before the people. Those 21 guys, okay, think about the situation they're in. Provide three men from every tribe, okay, three men get nominated, we don't know who they are, and they all come together, and you've got the entire community, hundreds of thousands of Israelites, and they stand before them, and they say, yes, we'll go. Do not remind you of anything? We get a new family in the church, and they stand before us, and Pastor Neil or I make some quest- We ask some questions of them. We say, uh, Do you acknowledge yourselves to be sinners in the sight of God? And so on. And, and we all hear these pledges. It's just worth thinking for a moment, isn't it? Just pause and recall the membership pledges that you all made, those of you who are members here. Will you seek to live in such a manner as to bring honor to Christ and his church? Will you diligently make use of the means God has provided for growth in your Christian life, such as regular Bible study and reading and prayer and fellowship and church attendance and the Lord's Supper? Will you do that? It's actually not a bad idea just to read through these occasionally. I get the privilege of reading through them. It's part of my job. I have to read it with all the flock of new members who want to keep joining the church all the time. But I encourage you to do so. If you don't have a copy, you should have a copy. And just email me and I'll send you one will you discover improve and make use of your god-given gifts for the service of others and all these 21 men who stood before the congregation were given the kind of equivalent charge are you going to be faithful to the lord are you going to do what he's called you to do and they all said we'll do it yes and so do you want to know whether they did well they did initially they went out they wrote the description in a book They brought it back to Joshua, and Joshua cast lots for them. But when you start to see the story of the Israelites unfolding from this point onwards, what you notice is, you know, there are problems all over the place. Just just take one example from what comes after this. In a few weeks' time, we'll get to the inheritance of Dan, the tribe of Dan. If you remember from last week, I gave you a map. Who remembers where the inheritance of Dan was supposed to be? you probably, it's kind of hard to describe, it's sort of in the middle, on the left, on the west side. But if you know your Bible history, you know that the tribe of Dan never received an inheritance there. They were given that inheritance, they never actually took it, and at the end of chapter 19, you discover why. They didn't take it. They fled to the north. They fled right up to the top of Israel, out of the way They didn't want to take the inheritance the Lord had given them. So you get this saying from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south. That's the extent of the land of Israel. They never actually took what was given to them. And then you cast your mind back, even just to last week, and you think, who exactly are these people who are gathered in worship before the living God, gathered at his tabernacle before Joshua, and making all these solemn pledges? They're the same people who, in the previous chapter, were complaining that their inheritance is too small. And then when Joshua said, okay, you can have more inheritance, they said, that's too difficult. (laughs) What do you want exactly? You haven't even conquered the place, you're supposed to be given. Chapter 17, verse 12 and 13. The people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities. Well, really. The Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When the people of Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labour, so they could have driven them out, actually. Anybody you can put to forced labour, you can drive out of the land that they're in. So why didn't they? it's just easier somebody else to do the work, isn't it? And so their ongoing commitment, from this point on, has a big fat question mark stuck over it. And that accounts, verse 3, for Joshua's exasperation. This is not just, um, just tell me how long it's going to take, this is, how long? How long is this going to take you to do? You know, that phrase, um, to become slack, how long will you be slack in your commitment to the Lord? It's what the Lord says the other way around when he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Literally, it's I'll never be slack from you. I'll never become lax in my commitment to you. I'll always be with you. it's, It's not like we're following a kind of whimsical God or an erratic and unpredictable Lord Jesus who might be with us today, might not, not sure what to do. I won't be slack from you. So how long are you going to be slack from him? And you see there is this deep underlying tension embedded in this narrative which makes the whole thing extremely awkward and the reason is because frankly for all of their professed commitment for all that they have received for all that they've promised to do for all that they love gathering together to worship God you you search in vain throughout the rest of their lives for any consistent indication that they're actually fulfilling the commitments that they've made. Let me just, um, I want to conclude in a, in a minute or two, but I want to just highlight a few uh, features of our life together, which I, some of which I've spoken about before, not all of them. Um, But for example, I spoke last week about some of the opportunities and challenges that we have as a congregation and a denomination in the months and years ahead. I spoke about church planting and a need for pastoral training. We have something like 10 or 12 churches in the CREC, our denomination, who are looking for pastors, besides us. Where are they going to come from? Answer is they're going to have to be trained by somebody. So who's going to do that? It's expensive, difficult, time-consuming, demanding. Who's going to do it? Actually, just, just this last week, we had a, a session meeting a couple of days ago. Um, we made a commitment to... Be, we were invited to become part of a church planting network within our denomination. Uh, Pastor Virgil Hurt, our prime, Min- uh, Pre- prime minister, sorry. Prezi- <laughs> bear, bear with me, just Freudian right now. Um, Presiding Minister of Council had invited a number of churches to become founding members of a, a network designed to help and facilitate church planting in difficult parts of the country and overseas, perhaps overseas, and, and said if you want to be a part of this you have to put two and a half thousand dollars down to start with and I thought two and a half thousand dollars, that's quite a lot of money then I thought no, hold on, two and a half thousand dollars I planted a church once, two and a half thousand dollars is not a lot of money. If we want to put, you look at the list of the biggest churches in the US and then remove the ones that already have a CREC church on them the list goes from this to about, sorry, biggest cities. Did I say churches? Biggest cities. The list goes from this to this. But we have a lot of work to do. A lot of work to do. I had a, another example. This is a completely different sort of situation, but you'll start to see how unexpected challenges are likely coming our way. Um, I had a really wonderful conversation on Friday with a gentleman who is uh, thinking of moving to Fort Worth with his family. He said, um, I'm from a Baptist church... And we're finding that increasingly, Baptist churches, where we'd be at home theologically, are harder and harder to find. Can you tell me whether Baptists are welcome in your denomination and in your church? And I said, Yes, absolutely. I said, Could we become members of your church? I said, Yes, absolutely. I said, we'd want to keep talking about the baptism issue, but I hope you know that our, our constitution as a church and as a denomination allows for Baptist churches to be members and Baptist Christians to be members of this church. Now, that creates headaches galore, let me tell you, because you have all kinds of hassles with how you sort out church membership and um, communion practices across different churches in the denomination. And I was chatting to this guy, and I said, basically, what the problem that we're trying to deal with is that... Uh, it's starting to be the case that if you want a church that isn't woke and isn't progressive, you might not be able to find a Baptist one. And you might be stuck with the CREC, sorry. And, and, and we're, we're struggling to deal with this. And deal with it we must. We have to find a way. And we will, Lord willing. We will. Pastor Virgil Hurt is going to be busy because he's had to start a study group to figure out what to do with that as well. It's like It, it reminds me of the, the one time I went um, sailing with a friend of mine. I'm going to finish with this story, okay? I uh, went sailing with a friend of mine in Pool Harbour in England. Pool Harbour is a beautiful place to sail because it's quite big. Largest natural harbour in the world, I think. And it's um, enclosed, mostly enclosed. So the water gets very flat, but the wind gets very high. It's awesome. So you get these little two-man laser sailing dinghies out, and you're kind of trying to um, uh, and initially we were sort of going along and pottering along, and I thought I think I can let a bit more sail out. <laughs> so, and pretty before long, you're having to sort of lean out sideways on the boat. And it's like And I think I capsized that boat 28 times that day. And you know when you think you're staying in roughly the same place, then what you're actually doing is going sort of a zigzag out to sea. And we left port Harbor because we thought the waves out there would be really cool. And we're sort of zigzagging down the coast. Um, let me tell you, coming back into the teeth of a force four when it was it was the most exhausting experience of my life. Now, let me tell you the experience of handling the opportunities the Lord is going to throw away is gonna feel like letting a bit more sail out and heading out to sea. That's what it always feels like. It's not that the Lord gives you these opportunities and then he gives you problems. Like the opportunity is the problem. Anybody had a child in the last few days? Want to testify to that? The gift, the gift of God is... Now, you get to work harder. Like, five talents. Like, awesome, okay. Um, Well, now you've got to put five talents to work. And we have, to conclude, uh, I think, in my experience, at least of, of... first-hand experience of church life, unprecedented opportunities because of how the Lord has blessed us as a congregation, um, with the growth that we've enjoyed, with the happy unity we've enjoyed, with our our unanimity of mind and the shared convictions about what's really important as we gather for worship, because the Catholic faith, that's Christian faith, is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity and praise God for the rediscovery of the glory of gatherings like this. And now, so your worship is glorious. So what about the rest of our lives? Let's pray, shall we? Merciful God and Father, we are frankly at times awestruck or not awestruck enough by your kindness to us, by the opportunities you've laid before us, by the, the gifts upon which we've been had bestowed upon us as a congregation by the joy of our fellowship and our worship and the, the people we have around us upon whom we can call in innumerable different circumstances. Teachers, we pray, not to be simply those who come here to meet with you and with one another, but who give ourselves, who lay down our lives for the world as Jesus did seeking so to serve Christ as a church community and as families and individuals that your world may, even through us, be transformed and bring more glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.